0: production.
1: This is From Zero, conversations with business founders. I'm Adam Schwab, founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. People ask me all the time how we started the business, and now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak to Kim Tio, co-founder of food order platform, Misty Young. Kimberly Teo was born into business. As a kid, she saw her parents build and scale multiple successful startups, with some growing to over 50 team members. It was a creative family, but growing up in Singapore, which had a regimented education system. Kim found it challenging to be creative at school. Class was strict, and subjects were practical, the opposite to what she experienced at home. Later in her education, Kim moved to a more flexible international school, which sparked a passion for business and entrepreneurship. But as Kim's passion for business grew, her dad began to warn her of the ups and downs of a life in business.
0: My dad actually had a very successful advertising agency when he was like really young, like before he had kids and then ended up walking away from the founding relationship and ended up actually nearly in a lot of trouble, like pretty much nearly bankrupt when my brother was born. So had like very high ups and very low downs pretty early in his career, which I think is a typical entrepreneurship story. The conversations around the dinner table were very much focused on like your destiny is in your hands and I didn't have parents that would like talk about their the constraints of office politics which I felt like a lot of other families were talking about um and we just never had any of that so I definitely feel like uh I from a very young age it was you know if you if you want to have control over your destiny, then the only way you can really do that is by starting something yourself.
1: Your first job, so you went to uni and, you, and then you got a job as an analyst at, at JP Morgan and then had a bunch of jobs that were really corporate So BP, uh, I think you worked as a consultant for Portland Group. Uh, and I think you had maybe another corporate job after that. So you had, I think I was six years working for, for massive global corporate, which is such a far cry from because your parents' entrepreneurial roots. Uh, what was it like working in such massive business of someone who would become a hardcore entrepreneur just a few years later?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think um, the kind of the trap that I got in a little bit was I was very academic and like I was pretty good at getting through exams, etc. And I think the challenge with that is when I would go to the graduate fairs and like look at all these um opportunities and all my friends would you know want to apply to these big corporates and like going and working at a startup just wasn't even on the radar like it just it wasn't it didn't seem like a possibility back then and um even the like business clubs and the entrepreneur clubs were just so lame compared to like what they are today and so I ended up like applying for a bunch of different roles and I remember getting the JP Morgan role and Like not really like wanting to take it a whole lot, but I felt like, like they only accepted six people into the program that year. And I just felt like it would be, you know, everyone's dream to do it. And so I should do it too.
1: Kim wasn't totally sold on building someone else's business. She started following her intuition and with her sister, she created her first business, a bridesmaid dress rental service called Simply Borrowed. It was a great apprenticeship of running a startup. And the Tao sisters did a good job, but it was never quite enough for Kim to quit the corporate world. For Kim, getting a taste of being her own boss meant it was only a matter of time before she would start again.
0: I would like book meetings with myself for like three or four hours at VP and like be a building Shopify website on the side. Um no one really knew because, like, the work was just so corporate and cruisy. Um, and I was so over corporate at this point. And I had the idea with my actually traveling back from a conference in in Brisbane again with my sister on a plane. And we were like, "Oh my god, I don't want to have to think about going to the grocery store." And like, it's Sunday night, and what are we going to do for the rest of the week? I'm just like. HelloFresh and things weren't really like options back then. I used to live in a townhouse with two other properties and one of them in particular would cook amazing food and you could smell it all the time. And so the idea was just like I wish I could just like knock on their door and ask if they'd like make me meals for the rest of the week and I'm sure like an extra portion – like, an extra portion isn't really going to do much to their, like, effort. Like, it's such a small extra effort to add, like, a couple more portions to their plan. And that's kind of, yeah, how the idea started. Just think probably out of, like, laziness and realizing that I am not a very good cook. Um, and the idea was quite illegal, actually. So, like, to cook and sell food in your home, you needed a license. And the, the fine for a person that got found out to be cooking in their home and selling the food they were making was like local council regulated and up to like $40,000 fine. So it's a bad idea. Yeah. I think it's like relationships. Like every relationship you have as a teenager teaches you something about what you want and what you don't want. And even if it's horrible at the time, like you look back in retrospect and it was actually somewhat helpful. So when I had the idea for NeighborSlaver, I decided to call this lady this this girl Mary that I'd met at the um at the conference and she put me in touch with Adrian. Adrian had this business that was like it's a startup incubator. It was a services business that um didn't take equity and like didn't charge for technology so it essentially helped founders run through like a education program that helped them validate or you know or or not validate their ideas and a lot of it was pretty hacky, non-code um, type stuff. We spoke on the phone for like an hour. We really got along and he lived in Brisbane and I lived in Melbourne and we started working together on the, on the idea and um, we didn't start dating for like two and a half years. So we were business partners and just became really good friends. And yeah, over time, I was with someone else when we first met and he was with someone else when we first met. And then over time we became single and then we started dating at neighbor flavor from a learning point of view. We ended up reaching out to a startup in New York that was doing the same thing that we were trying to do, but in a city that was less regulated and New York had some rules around like cottage industries and what you could make that was not as strict as Australia so we ended up reaching out to these guys, two two founders in New York, and they ended up like flying to Australia for four days to like hang out with us. And I ended up living there in New York for like three months. Um, and we were we were like the tenth, like ninth and tenth people in the team, even though we could make it work in Australia. We ended up like trying to find a way to see if it could work overseas with maybe a different bunch of folks and. Um, we ended up leaving because there was this really awkward team meeting where everyone um, at the business got like a $50 voucher to go and use credit. Like as, we use a platform and they had like fr- a free $50. And on a Monday morning, we had like this stand up, like actually standing up around like in a circle. And the founder's like, why isn't anyone like, why, do- why don't you guys use the credit? Like why don't you use the free $50 credit that's on this on this app? And I was like, oh my God, this is I was like, this is this is a disaster. Like if your team if your team aren't using the free credit on your own platform, like you've got complexity issues. And like you're right, the business was really challenging in like the fact that you had to decide what you wanted to have, like at two PM when people don't typically decide what they want for dinner till late. Um, and then you had to like travel to someone's house to go and pick up your meal, which like could be you know, a 10-minute walk away, but it could be like a 10-minute train ride away, and then you're like weirdly knock, I h- like had this experience myself, you're like weirdly knocking on a stranger's door, and you don't really know like, if you're in the right place, so you don't really know like, who you're going to meet at the, like, when they open the door, and then they're giving you like a, a takeaway package of food that, like you know, I don't know, like, it feels weird.
1: It was now. 2015, and Adrian and Kim had a tough decision to make. The logistics and bureaucracy of collaborating with local councils wasn't sustainable, and even though Neighbour Flavour was an interesting idea, it was never going to be a successful business. But Kim and the team at Pitch Black were far from done. Kim still had a great affinity for the hospitality sector and wanted to create a business that would shake up the customer experience.
0: We would go out to restaurants. I did say before, like, I'm not a very good cook. So we used to eat out a lot. We would go out to restaurants and often look at a menu and try and like go on Instagram and like find visual cues for like what the menu could look like. And we realized that people were looking around the room and trying to like check out other people. And like, people just visually led. People want to see what their food and drinks are going to look like and avoid like levels of disappointment when they get their dish because it isn't exactly what they expected and so the original idea was more like how can we make menus way more interesting and interactive and dynamic with like photos and language translations and dietary filters and Adrian was right in that he was like this idea just has no legs on monetization it's like it's never going to work but like we could you know start to take orders and payments and orders and payments is a really good business so the insight was not really the convenience around placing orders um, more quickly. The insight was more like menus are 300 years old and they haven't really changed and like people want something different today. In our first three weeks of like kind of playing around with the idea, um, found Table, went on their website. I clicked on like the, they had this like download our app from the app store button I clicked on the link and it went to like a dead app store page. And so I reached out, Ben and Chris, who are like the two founders um, of Table. And we ended up like hanging out with them, becoming really good friends, meeting them. They told us all about like their biggest challenges. I still text about like Ben and Chris today. And they ended up, they built an app and that was really challenging And um, one of the things that we'd learned from all of our pitch black research and different industries and categories that we'd looked into and like what makes a business successful, like so much of it was format of the application and the frictionless approach. Like it's not just the idea, it's like the execution of of the idea. And we were actually waiting, like we always wanted to build a web-based product. We never wanted to bring out an app day one because we believed that, someone would download an app just to see a visual version of the menu, but they would if it was web and like the QR code was like a gateway. We actually sat on the idea for the better part of nine months and three months into that nine months, we saw Apple put the QR code scanner in the phone and it was done super quietly in like one of their software updates. So in like July 18, they put it into like a software update. So it didn't even happen like all of a sudden because people had to update their phone, right? And, like, the updates can take a year and a half for, like, everyone to get the new iOS 15 or whatever. We noticed that it had happened and it was very quietly done, not even, like, announced broadly on one of those September things that Steve Jobs used to do. And we we were like, oh, this is, like, this is the difference between adoption of QR codes in China versus adoption of QR codes in the Western world. They had WeChat and WeChat was pretty much on the glass. We've got phones that don't have something on the glass and we have to download an app to, you know, gain access to a QR code. And the second they did that, we were like, cool, let's do this. Yeah. So we actually like waited. And I think we knew that Table had struggled because of the app. They had to pay people $5 to like try it. And um, the one thing that Ben from Table ended up saying to us is, if you do, if you are, if you consist of less than 5% of the orders in a venue, you are so unimportant that they don't even keep their menu up to date. Like just the friction of like, you need to be 50% of their orders, 20% of their orders, one in five orders are coming from your software. Then they'll actually like put in the effort to keep the menus up to date, you know, look after the system, have make it a good guest experience, tell people about it. Like there is a tipping point on adoption that makes it like a pain in the ass versus like a total efficiency gain. And we knew that if we built an app, it would be like, their app was beautiful. It wasn't bad at all. It was just like really tricky to get customers to adopt an app. And, you know, we had competitors at the time that brought out apps and we were lucky. We ran with, like a QR code to web platform. And even though it was hard to get customers to understand how to use a QR code back then, COVID definitely helped us with that education Um, and now everyone's got QR codes. We didn't even have like any revenue. We were like a visual menu with no ordering and payment solution yet. And Andre, our CTO, had like not even started. It was hard, but I think, um, you know, the one thing that, that Pitch Black afforded us in our understanding of the startup ecosystem is how like Australian businesses, we're just not, we don't We don't give ourselves the opportunity to compete on a global stage if we try to like talk down our valuation and talk down our capital raise requirements. And I think we learned from being in the ecosystem for a while that you look at a US-based startup doing exactly the same idea as an Aussie-based startup and they'll go for five to 10 times the capital in a seed round or a series a compared to what an aussie founder would try for and it just made no sense it's like hold on a second we're trying to compete on a global stage with each other why would we do that with five to ten times less capital we know we're going to be more capital efficient because every australian business has to be and is taught to be like super capital efficient i don't think it's in our like it it's not in our dna to just spend money without consideration our philosophy around capital has been just raised for three years like even if you think you won't spend it do it anyway and take the money and put it in the bank and the leverage that it gives you is um kind you can't even quantify how much leverage that that has given us
1: after you raised this, the seed money how how quick did you guys realize that that this business was different. I guess, just for yourself, you had the two earlier businesses where the unit economics probably didn't quite work, but but clearly Mr. Young was different. Um, what were you seeing in that first six to 12 months? How confident were you that, that this time it was different?
0: The level of like analysis and unit cost economics we did in the early days to make sure we weren't um, we weren't going to land in the same position it was definitely real. We, it's a super, it's a really different... Business in a couple of ways. The first one is we looked at the delivery world. So like the Ubers and DoorDash and deliveries of the world. And on average, they have to onboard. I think it's like 20 to 30 times more merchants than us to achieve the same level of transaction volume. In Australia, DoorDash have 20 to 25 times more merchants or 20 times more merchants than Mr. Yum and we do maybe 30% less GMB than them. And so the unit cost on like onboarding and what you could spend on acquiring a merchant and onboarding a merchant is actually really high. What it afforded us was an opportunity to become, you know, their top three most important technology partner in their business the level of engagement and prioritization you get by being guest facing in front of house facing and, and they could see their customers using it every day. Like that level of top of mind that, that is afforded to a like order and pay partner is pretty incredible. Um, and then the math is so simple. Like we charge a percentage on transactions. So the more transactions we do in a partnership with the restaurant, the more money we make. If we don't, manage to onboard them well and we don't sell the benefits well and their team are like totally not on board and they don't do any volume then we make no money so our business is not just in like the sales aspect but it's also in the implementation like our implementation team are technically part of our sales team because they, without the implementation piece we'd be we'd, we'd make no money and that's like a little bit different now that we've acquired the crm kind of there's span my guess is because they've got subscription revenue, which is helpful. It helps to de-risk de- our revenue streams and seasonality impact a little bit. But the the maps on Mr. Yum's pretty good. And I think we we saw that really early. And investors see that too.
1: Mr. Yum was now growing, and the annuity nature of that B2B model meant they could continue innovating to grow the business as 2020 began and COVID brought the entire consumer world to a standstill, Mr. Yum was left in the dark. Burn rate is something you never want to be considering when you're starting a business. Unless your business is able to slow the burn of cash or get the flow to break even, the business will die. For Mr. Yum, With COVID reducing their revenue to virtually zero, the team had no idea how long they could survive.
0: The burn was probably like 40, 40, 50 grand, but we only had seven months of runway. So we raised in March 2019. So by March 2020, we were already like 12 months in to our one and a half mil. and. We only had a small team of twelve people, but on the no revenue and current burn rate, we would have, we would have. I think it was like we wrote this um transparent email to our team that had like exactly the amount of money we had in our bank account and like how many months runway we had at the time. Um, and like we did a couple of things really well. We actually like brought out a takeout product and recovered all of our revenue in six weeks which was like, we didn't have a big business back then. Like it wasn't, you know, like we didn't have many um, in restaurant sites. So it wasn't like a huge GMB volume to like recover in six weeks, but it was still pretty amazing. You had to like onboard all these new venues and start taking takeout orders, which is like a product that we never had before COVID. And then the second thing is we asked if our team would do a 20% salary sacrifice and if they went harder than 20%, it would be even like at an even more discounted valuation And we, yeah, wrote it out, extended our runway, probably like an extra 12 months. And then the government subsidies on labor, like started to help. And there were some months with like the government labor support that we were break even, and if not a little bit profitable during those COVID months, the hardest thing actually wasn't the initial few months. I think it was actually like the opening and closing, like for the next 12 months after that, like that was really challenging because you'd get heaps of momentum, like you'd onboard sites and then it would shut and then you'd lose all your momentum. And then you'd have to pick that back up. It was so like, it was impossible to understand like how our teams were truly performing. Was it macro? Was it like, like how do you even measure things when like restaurants are closing every five seconds um, in Melbourne and Sydney and even in Queensland with their like snap lockdown. So I think that was like way more difficult than um than the first piece
1: yeah in what was one of the great startup pivots mr yum made the swift decision to focus on takeaway rather than in-store dining but now in 2022 mr yum may have to pivot again is the restaurant industry returning to more traditional operations or is the mr yum model here to stay
0: Oh, Adam, I want to be honest. Like when we first started, like we were, you know, we, we were we were we weren't that ambitious. Like we were, um, we were like, oh, if we start for like three months in, or like if we start for ten million dollars, we'd be like pumped. <laughs> um, so yeah, I wanted to share that because I think, I think that the Shanda mindset is a staircase. It's not like you don't have to be you don't have to like feel like you're, you know, five years ahead of where you need to be on ambition. Like I think we grew with the business and we're still growing with the business and our ambitions are growing as well. Like as we um achieve milestones. I probably won't disclose like exact growth figures because I know others will take it and run with it. But what I would say is like one thing we before our series a we were like totally the underdogs there were brands and competitors that like seemed to seem seemed to be clearly more resource and have better networks and more capital than us and for like two and a half years our team who've been around like we've We've only had one junior person leave in like three years. We've had like nearly a hundred percent retention in our team. So like pretty much all of our all of our team that were here pre COVID are still with us today. And the whole time we were like trying to prove to the industry that the best product in the world will win. And that's what we were like, you know, product and support. And like that's all we were super focused on. And and I think for a while like we didn't quite have that credibility and some of the kind of bigger brands or more traditional brands wouldn't like didn't really see that and that's all changed. like the credibility that we've got today after having done you know such a good round it's like people care more about it than I care about it it was really important for us because we're not like restaurant background and we're not you know like existing successful like startup founders like we didn't have this like story to sell on like why we would be successful and so that's like the biggest difference between now and pre-Series A the biggest brands in the world they don't want to work with like a startup that feels like it could be non-existent in a year or two they don't want to invest in a technology partner that could disappear so the conversations that we are now afforded like at that enterprise and a town is just like not what we had the ability to attract before we raised our series a because we're not totally crazy and irresponsible we looked at each other and we're like okay if we do this round like we are signing up for a very very big business and we have to like we're committing to having kids around this business and starting a family and like thinking about our lives and like we're committing the next five, ten years to this company. Um, are we do we want to do that? Like are we down with that? And um I think so much of the reason it was an absolute no brainer is just our team. Like we have we're just like really good friends with so many of them. And we have nearly a hundred percent retention. The culture's amazing. Like we couldn't imagine giving this up to someone else. Like we couldn't imagine handing this over to to another company or another leadership team right now. We feel like We've got so much run in us and we've got like so much ambition as a team that, you know, to try and sell the business today would be like a little bit just not not unfinished business. And we don't want to like have to do it again. I think you would empathize with how hard it is to go from zero to one. And once you've got something that's like going from one to 10, it's way more fun than the zero to one because you've got amazing executive team, amazing like leadership, amazing like people thinking around your business, and you feel like we feel like we 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 feel like we' are taking it to a we're like committing for the long term rather than trying to sell out in the short term. We're not getting out any time soon, and you know the acquisition of sprouted my Guest This actually has been really fun, like bringing in a couple of other founders has just been amazing like I have loved working with Andy and Damon and David like the CEO and the two founders that came on board and the way that they the way they hustle and the way like they just it's just fun um so I think you know we want to build a brand around becoming really good at making strategic acquisitions and um we'll grow the company through organic and and through acquisitions but yeah we know when you're done and there's so much fire I think still um, in the team.
1: And that was Kimber Tio, founder of Mr. Yum. And you've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Our producer is Ed Gooden. Our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab.